0: The difference between decent video and really good video is somebody that looks for foreground to that shot.
1: I try really hard to include those animals as a part of the scene to tell a bigger, wider story than just about that animal. Standing chest deep in swamps with a latte in one hand and a 100 to 400 (laughs) in the other. It's it's painting that
2: whole picture of, of that moment.
3: Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed, your wildlife photography and outdoor adventure podcast. This week, Michael Morrow, Ron Hayes, and Doug Gardner are joined by special guest Nick Page. Nick is a talented and knowledgeable landscape photographer from Washington State. In this week's show, he shares his tips, tricks, and insights with us. So if you want to learn what it's like to be a landscape photographer in 2019, listen in. Also, in my opinion, this week's pro tips are off the charts, so get comfortable, grab a pen and notepad, and settle in for another great podcast.
2: All right, so we are here today, we are in four different states. We've got a guest with us today, Nick Page from the Landscape Photography Podcast and Uh, nickpagephotography.com. We'll get to his introduction here in a minute. First, we wanted to lead off, though, with our, our weekly pro tips. Uh, before we do that, how are things in South Carolina, Doug?
0: Ah, things are getting, getting good. This is the time of year I love. The temperature starts to drop. My ducks start to migrate in. And uh, you'll usually find me uh, chest deep in the swamp somewhere filming ducks. And that's what I was doing this morning. So, yeah, life is good, man.
4: How about Mike in Colorado? It's that typical up and down. You never know. One day it's 30, the next day it's 60. Yesterday we had high, high winds. It, you know They closed the ski lifts down in the mountains just because of the high winds. Not that much snow, but there's quite a bit of snow in the mountains, but yesterday it was all wind. Um, I just got back from Minnesota. It was super cold up there, but down here tomorrow is supposed to be 60 degrees. So
0: Wow.
4: Yep. Some are winter wrong? in Colorado.
0: Yeah,
2: I just got back from Minnesota also, but it was, while I was there, it was pretty mild. Came back to the 60 to 80 mile an hour wind gusts uh, for the last couple days. It's blowing in a storm, though, so it finally sounds like we're going to get a little bit of moisture,
1: but Nick... Yeah, this uh, is the time of year where everything looks like Armageddon in and, and, and southeastern Washington. I'm I come from the part where everything is agriculture and you know wheat fields and everything. And this time of year, there is nothing, so it's just like rolling fields of dirt. It's one. It's very beautiful, and you combine that with the flat, boring light that we have uh, sometimes in the winter time—forty degrees and rainy and cloudy. It's. It's not a landscape photographer's um, paradise. I, I will tell you that it's, it's uh, pretty uninspiring. But I'm just getting back from Iceland, which was inspiring. And now I'm I'm kind of in that uh, that after trip uh, funk that you always end up in, where everything's photogenic. Then you come home, and you're like, Ugh, this is ugly. Yeah, <laughs> so but then that, you
2: can then you get some post processing done then, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. It gives me lots of time for post processing. <laughs>
2: all right uh mike what do you have for us for pro tip today
4: all right so i was actually going to grab one and i couldn't find it but we're not doing video anyway so i'm just going to explain it so you know when you go somewhere and somebody hands you one of those little rubber uh wrist bracelets that have sayings on it some you know Mm -hmm. just every cause has a little thing and you might buy it for five bucks or they might give it to you or whatever you know, normally you look at those things you're like, I've got 75 of these things everywhere I go. Or somebody gives me one, and what am I going to do with these? I'll never wear them all, right? What I use those for is, and we talked about this last week, I use a lot of neutral density filters when I'm shooting video because you've got to control the light. Sometimes those little filters get stuck on your lens. So what oh. I've done is I've taken those, and they're stretchy enough, and they're grippy enough you know, a lot of times you can't get that grip that you need to twist that filter off. But I'll tell you what, you put that little thing on there. It's like an old-timey oil filter wrench.
0: Mm-hmm. It
4: just like whips those those filters right off. So, it's an easy thing to pack and it really solves a lot of problems. So, if you're using filters, I'd highly recommend throwing a couple of those in your bag and it's a good way to to get, you know, it's a conundrum when you don't when you can't get that filter off there and sometimes it's warm and cold if you're If it's warm when you put that filter on and then cold and that that metal kind of contracts, those things can get really stuck on there pretty good.
1: Yeah. So So One of the things that I've learned as a landscape photographer is I'm using circular polarizers a lot. And the one thing, the cardinal sin is to stack a circular polarizer on top of another filter because it gets stuck like almost every time. And it doesn't matter the (laughs) brand. Uh, and then you know you have that narrow little rib that you're trying to grab onto to get it off and same is true for variable nds um, they're really tough so yeah that that a little add on pro tip is never stack those either a circular <laughs> polarizer or a variable nd because it'll get stuck almost every time
4: yep but <laughs> if you have two of those little bracelets you're you're well, you're sitting way better than if you didn't have yeah. them you could probably true. get them apart true and the other thing too is is if you do stack those and it's cold out, a lot of times you can take them back into a warmer temperature and they'll come apart. It's just it's just something to think about and just something to have on hand when you're out there using filters.
2: You start wearing more than two bracelets, you're going to be the one looking like Justin Bieber.
4: Yeah, that's right.
1: <laughs> it's good luck. It's a good luck. <laughs> yeah, it is.
4: And usually for a good cause,
2: too, right? That's right. <laughs> Doug, yourself?
0: cool all right so my pro tip is actually a pet peeve um oh, no. uh, yeah yeah and we'll get on bandwagon here so as wildlife photographers and even filmmakers one of the things that i see all the time and it's a it's a very amateur mistake generally when when people are uh, they have a, fi- a fixed lens let's say 500 millimeters or 600 or whatever and they're filming uh ungulates uh you know deer elk moose whatever bighorn sheep and they're too close to the animal to get the entire animal in they'll just whack their legs off and at, at no no at no specific area I mean and usually it's at the knee and now you have an amputee moose and it is, it is it drives me absolutely nuts. The other thing is, even if the animal, if there's plenty of room all the way around the animal, and they could frame it properly, if the animal is standing in say knee-high grass where they can't actually see from the knee or from the any of the leg, they can't see any of the legs in the grass, they will make the they will cut the bottom of the frame right across the belly of the moose or the elk or whatever, because they couldn't actually see the legs. Well, just cause you can't see the legs doesn't mean they're not there. So my pro tip is I call it virtual legs. So even though you can't see the legs, you have to imagine where the feet actually are touching the ground and include all of that area of grass plus just a little bit more to give some room for the animal to breathe because a lot of the a lot of the things that we absorb uh visually uh becomes a subconscious appreciation for the image i guess is a, is a lack of better terms meaning you like the rule of thirds you really don't realize that your mind prefers subject to be in the rule of thirds, you know, not dead center of the photograph off to one side, looking through the frame. And the same goes with these virtual legs. Um, You know, until those legs are actually, there's some room given to show where they actually are touching the ground, that's when your mind does appreciate it, does know that, hey, yeah, that does look better. There there are legs down there touching the ground, so don't cut the legs off. If you do find yourself in a situation where you're too close, you can't get all the legs, go vertical. Go for the head and the neck. You know, make intentional decisions on your photograph. Don't just throw up the camera and fire away and and pray later that you got something good. Actually make a creative decision to turn it vertical, use the head, use the neck. Um, and for filmmakers that are doing video, um, the problem is the same. It's exactly the same. However, with video, you're, you're, you're always trying to build a sequence. And a sequence is going to include a wide, a medium, tight, and really tight shots that, that all are cut together in video editing to, to produce a, a nice sequence that tells a complete story. So if we're shooting a, a bighorn sheep, uh, we want that wide shot showing the, the big horn is just a little speck with the big mountains in the background. Then something a little bit tighter with you know, just the the, the full animal and then something a little bit tighter, which may be just the, the horns and the, and the head. And then if you're lucky enough to get close enough, you know, those detail shots of an eye or the foot touching the ground or something like that, um, or the heads hitting the you know, tight shot of the horns hitting, um. And so, if you are too close and you can't get that full body, that's when you take the opportunity to go in for those detail shots uh, instead of just shooting some, you know, blase shot um, that looks like you didn't know what you were doing. So. Virtual legs don't cut them off.
1: Cool. Plus, you know, if you if you include those virtual legs, you can go into Photoshop Paint and and just draw them in later Dang, on. Absolutely. Right? <laughs> but um, one of the things that I don't know that many people know about me, but I'm I'm kind of a generalist photographer. I still shoot a lot of other stuff. Um, I shoot some portraits, but I'm lucky enough to get to shoot an NFL game every year. And, you know, when you're shooting sports, one of the things that you're always up against is, um, you know, in the heat of battle, when you're photographing a play running, running past you, uh, the, the crop is so important and trying to find comfortable ways of cropping a human or an animal or whatever but you have to find ways to crop it in a way that doesn't create tension and create some kind of awkward feeling as a viewer And when you when you crop at joints like knees and ankles and wrists and stuff it's always just awkward because you're like where, where, where did their hoof go? Where did, right. where did that go? So you, if you do have to crop in that, that awkward way, you want to do it in between the joints, you know, do it, right. do it at a, a forearm or a, or, you know, a four leg. And that, that's one of the, the tough parts, but uh, yeah, I totally agree. If you're going to shoot tight, shoot tight. If you're going to shoot loose and sh- include the whole animal, shoot loose and include the whole animal and, and where that animal would be if it wasn't obstructed by vegetation or whatever. I use virtual legs
2: all the time, but typically it's—I uh, just try to stand on the uphill side of everybody else that I'm around. <laughs> <laughs> What's your so, tip, Ron? Um, my tip came as a result of uh, perceived focus issues with my camera, and I—I had mentioned that on the last podcast that I was having focus issues uh, with the with the 200 to 500 and it wasn't focus issues at all. It's something that I intentionally, so anytime you're shooting wildlife from a vehicle, so you're in Yellowstone Park, you're, you know, you're in different parks in Colorado, national parks are great spots because wildlife aren't spooky. You can pull up, you can step out of the car, get your shot. Uh, when you're shooting in the wintertime, you know, we talked about when, when we were in Alaska, uh, we, when that sun came up and we talked about shooting through thermals, and what that does to your focus or your ability to focus shooting from a vehicle is the same exact way. If you're shooting uh, from or around a vehicle in the wintertime, the air inside the vehicle, if you have a heater on and I was with my son and he can't stand to be cold. So he had the heater on all the time. So what you're doing is you're creating a, a, a thermal layer that you have to shoot through because if you, if you're shooting from a window That hot air or warm air is going outside. When it meets that cold air, you're going to have some distortion if you try to shoot in that environment. And I I was with him. He was on the side of the animal. So I stepped out and thought I was outside of that zone because I was away from the window. And what I didn't think about was that my vehicle had been running all morning. And so the engine block, I was shooting over the engine block, that's creating the same thing. So that was my focus issue. It's something that I know to be conscious of. But anytime you're shooting from a vehicle, make sure you're away from those thermal zones, whether it's the, you know, shoot don't rest on the hood. If you get a, if you have to rest on the vehicle, go to the back of the vehicle or you're not going to have any heat produced by the engine hmm. uh, or the heater inside. So that's a that's a problem not many people probably see in South Carolina. Very
1: no <laughs> <laughs> Every, everything's a thermal zone
2: <laughs> that's right
0: <laughs> we don't shoot we don't shoot in south carolina because... <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah but don't throw your camera away is what i'm saying it's, cool. it's probably something a little bit different cool, cool.
0: good
1: deal all
2: right, all right
1: Nick, did you have you've added a couple things did you have anything in particular yeah. So, uh, mine is kind of, uh, so I'm coming from more of a landscape photographer situation and, uh, landscape photographers, I'm guessing have a different set of problems than, than the average wildlife photographer. Um, what, it, what, I'm just curious, I want to take a poll of you guys. Uh, what, what kinds of, uh, water gear are you guys usually using? Are you, I'm guessing that most of you are probably using waders when you're, um shooting in water situations right waiters waiters all all three of you so i actually use something completely different and i absolutely love them they're called nrs boundary socks and they're basically like a a dry suit that is knee high goes only up to your knees but it seals against your skin and because it's like a dry suit you can be in extremely cold water you can wear shoes over the top of them then wear pants over the top of that and the cool thing is is that when you're hiking into an area let's say you have to walk a couple miles to get to where you're going as a landscape photographer that's a pretty common problem you don't want to hike in with waiters because they weigh like 30 pounds And if you're in a situation like I'm often in where I'm shooting and surf and stuff, if you fall over in a set of waders and they fill with water, you sink. (laughs) So in a way, like if you're in a rushing stream or something, they're kind of a death trap and they're heavy. Um, So what what I've been using are these NRS boundary socks. And like I said, they're just a really lightweight, you know, sock about foot and a half long, two feet long, and you put them on and then you put a set of shoes over the top of them. A lot of times I'll put like a chain style cramp on over that. So I've got really awesome traction. And then I can just wear my standard hiking pants and then maybe like a Gore-Tex rain pant over the top of that. And because they seal at the knee, If you're wearing rain pants, in addition to that, you can easily get in waist high and you're 100% watertight. Your feet will never get cold. They'll never get wet. So, like, if you're in a situation where you're hiking in a little ways and then you need to do a stream crossing or maybe you just want to be standing in a pond or a river or some kind of cold water, they're an awesome solution because they're light. You can just shove them in your camera bag, no problem. And if you're traveling at all, they they pack they travel a whole lot easier than like a muck boot. And you know, the problem with muck boots is they're only this tall and they don't seal at the top. So if you get water over the top, you're done. And that never happens with these NRS boundary socks. So that's that's my now, tip is anytime you're shooting in water, they're awesome.
0: Are they um, a neoprene material?
1: Yeah, they're neoprene. They're okay. like a
0: neoprene
1: elastic material, so they're kind of stretchy, you know, and it's essentially like a, a I guess it would be a dry suit, not a wet suit, but they, because they seal like that and they don't breathe at all, um, it locks in your heat, so I just came back from Iceland in the middle of the wintertime, and I was standing out in the Iceberg Lagoon and standing standing on, on, like, literally in the Arctic Ocean, and... I was totally fine shooting that way for hours, and and they pack pack down really light and compact. You just throw them in the camera bag, and
0: That's they're awesome. nice when
1: you're traveling. So I'll well, I don't I don't,
0: put the link down below. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. A lot
1: of kayakers, like cold water kayakers, use them because you know, obviously, you fall in off a kayak with a set of waders, and you got problems. And muck boots aren't a good solution for it. They, I'm I'm in love with them, and I don't think that a lot of photographers that don't follow me know about these
2: so yeah, i've heard you talk about them before and i thought they would be a great solution for so when we go to a, a one place in alaska to photograph bears you know it's it's either rubber boots or um you know mike wears a, a different boot that kind of you slip on over the top of your regular hiking
1: boot yeah uh, yeah those so like you know, neos, neos bears. Bears. yeah
4: that's what i wear the neos
1: the problem with those, though, is they don't always seal very well. And you get in above those, and they leak just a little bit, and your day is ruined. <laughs> mine, so. mine
4: are the the waist high neos, so they're kind of cool. Okay. So you get you get, but they do wear out. I've wore these for like three mm-hmm. years, and yeah, the seams start. You really got to retreat the seams, and you got to keep them going. Yeah. But they are. But the other thing it yours solves is it's the weight issue, right? I have a lot of weight because I'm, they're basically a canvas material or a a nylon material that's, you know, it all adds up and the least amount of stuff you want to pack...
1: Especially when you're flying in somewhere and like you take a big muck boot and you throw that in your luggage, there's half your bag. You yep. know and that yeah. sucks. So yeah. a lot of times, what I do is I just have these little neoprene socks and then I get the lightest weight pair of like little mesh tennis shoes that'll drain and dry really fast. I'll get those and I'll I'll shove them in my luggage and then when I'm hiking into a location, I'll go with my normal hiking boots, but I'll just throw a carabiner on those light pa- weight pair of shoes and throw them on the back of my bag and I'm i'm good and i don't even notice that i've got it so it's pretty cool good tip tip. i like
4: it we will put a link in the show notes so check that out
2: yeah so we brought nick nick page again is uh from the landscape photography podcast uh nick also used to be on the improve photography network and you can still hear him there once in a while um But the reason that we wanted to bring Nick on is we we talk a lot about shooting wildlife behavior. We talk a lot about, you know, uh, portrait type images. And Nick brings a different perspective. We wanted to talk a little bit today about shooting uh, wildlife with a landscape photographer's eye and just what do landscape photographers look at? What do they see? And how can we implement that in our our more environmental portraits of wildlife? Uh, Nick, I guess to start out, why don't you give us a little bit of background? Who you are? How'd you get started in photography? That kind of thing.
1: Cool. Well, I I live in southeastern Washington, uh, otherwise known as the edge of the Palouse region. So most people have heard of the Palouse. Um, I'm in the part of Washington State that is not green and not a rainforest. It's it's actually fairly arid over here. I've been doing photography as a whole for only six years, and for five of those six years, I've actually been a full-time professional photographer meaning you know full-time that's how I how I feed my kid is uh, through photography I lead workshops I teach tutorials on post-processing I podcast I have a YouTube channel I would say most people if they're going to recognize me it's because of my YouTube channel I do a lot of kind of behind the scenes vlogs of my adventures and misadventures and stuff like that um, But, yeah, I, I do a little bit of wildlife. I Like I kind of mentioned earlier, I am kind of a generalist photographer. I still shoot a lot of sports, just fading out of the other parts of photography, portraits and weddings and all of that stuff. And I can't I can't express just how thankful I am to be phasing out weddings from my from my <laughs> income. But, you know, when you're getting started, you got to do what you got to do to make the ends meet. But now the educational part of things is really how I'm making the bulk of my income now. So uh, because I'm a generalist, I do uh, do a fair bit of wildlife photography. Nothing like what you guys do. Um, A lot of times my wildlife photography is the oh, crap you know, and taking a picture out the window. (laughs) That's kind of how my wildlife photography is. Sometimes I'll, I'll do an intentional trip where, you know, because I live in Eastern Washington, it's really quick and easy for me to go up into the Northern Idaho area and photograph bald eagles, stuff like that. I like, I kind of do the low hanging fruit of wildlife photography. I'm not, you know, standing chest deep in swamps. I'm standing with a latte in one hand and a 100 to 400 (laughs) in the other. Uh, but you know, it's, it's kind of interesting as a landscape photographer, we, we see a lot of wildlife opportunity differently. We, uh, at least for me, when I like, if I'm in, you know, the, the Tetons and I happen to see a moose, I'm not thinking about getting like this tight, really awesome shot of the moose. I'm like, cool. Now I've got something for scale to give those, to give those trees in the background, a sense of scale or to give my entire scene like an anchor. So a lot of times what you know the the types of wildlife images that i really appreciate are the ones that are including the wildlife as part of the scene rather than you know having the shot be all about the wildlife um to me sometimes that can really that can really um i don't know uh anchor an image for one it gives the image a, a sense of scale and it gives it you know extra interest to have that that animal in the shot uh, but it also it, it just makes it feel so much more painterly and it tells a story like if if Bob Ross was going to paint a, a photo of a, you know, a big bull elk, he would probably put some mountains in the background. And and that's kind of how I envision my wildlife photography is I try really hard to include those animals as a part of the scene to tell a bigger, whiter story than just about that animal.
0: So I got a question real quick. Do, do you photograph by the number? Photographed
1: by the number, like like like. Yeah, like by Bob. numbers? Is that what we're? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I can't say that I do. <laughs> that is what
2: I was just gonna say. Is we're, we're good now. We've had a Bob Ross reference. We can
1: wrap this thing up. Yeah, a happy a happy little elk lives over here. That's right. He's such a happy little guy. Maybe a squirrel lives in this tree.
0: That's right. You know what you're talking about, though, about anchoring a shot with, with something, anchoring a landscape shot, that is so important. But even so, and I'm coming from, you know, most of my life has been uh, wildlife photography. And, you know, and now I'm pretty much mostly all cinematography. And it's, it's still the same, um, even with video world, because. If I've got, you know, an elk or a bighorn or whatever it is, you know, off at a distance, um, um, first thing I'm doing is I'm looking for a bush, a rock, anything to kind of include in my foreground. Um, I had a producer tell me one time the difference between decent video and really good video is somebody that looks for foreground to that shot. And Mm -hmm. uh, it it adds depth to the shot and dimension to the shot and carries the viewer's eye all the way through it at that point. Instead of the, the viewer's eye starting in the middle and going to the to the background, it goes all the way through starting at foreground. So, yeah, I can absolutely relate to that.
1: Yeah. And flipping this 180 degrees as a landscape photographer, we're always like you have that foreground. We always have the background. But to have to have an animal coming into uh, a static photo, an otherwise static photo, it gives the shot a sense of moment. And that's one of the things that a landscape shot most times lacks is a sense of of movement or energy or moment because it's like, hey, a mountain and a stream. You know, those are there every day, but you know, what's not there every day is that big, beautiful bull elk over on the left, you know, and it gives it that sense of moment. And, and just, it, it takes that static shot and and suddenly gives it a sense of, of, um, moment. Yeah. Absolutely. So as you talk about, you know, giving a moment to a
2: landscape photograph, I think the same can be said for, you know, what we're talking about right now in shooting wildlife is, You know, I can go every day, every day of the year, actually, and photograph bison in Yellowstone National Park. But it's it's that moment. It's the light. It's the behavior. It's the background. It's it's painting that whole picture of of that moment, just like you're talking about. And in doing so, I think you try to instill some emotion. When I look at, you know, for everybody that hasn't, you need to go to Nick Page photography.com take a look at some of his landscape images and you'll see kind of what he's talking about right now every every one of them is a a picture of a moment they might not all have wildlife in them in fact i think none of your none of the photographs that come across on your highlight reel there to be when you first log in have wildlife in them but they do they cap capture the moment and i think that's what we're talking about today and and what are we going to look at when we're trying to do that
1: yeah and you know as a because i'm obviously a landscape photographer first and i am like an opportunistic uh wildlife photographer so you know a lot of the wildlife opportunities that i have it's because i happen to be in this place and uh, and, you know and whatever you know one of the shots that i sent over was uh, of these two seals jumping out of a wave And it's, you know, for me, I was actually there to photograph waves. And then there's like, oh, hey, there's these seals. I should track them for a little bit, track them. Sure enough, they jump out of the water and I was lucky enough to get the shot. And, you know, stuff like that is a lot of the type of of wildlife that I get is just because I happen to be at this place where the wildlife was. I'm not actually actively seeking it out, Um, but you know, that's something for the landscape photographers listening is that there's going to be often, oftentimes, you know, our, our worlds are parallel. And so, you know, if you spend enough time out in nature, you're going to see your fair, a fair amount of wildlife. Uh, the trick is, is to, to be cognizant enough to, to be able to photograph it. You know, one of the, some of the, uh, You know, the worst times that I've had is because I went out with a wide angle lens and then like, you know, this beautiful scene unfolds where, again, I I keep thinking of bull elk because that's what we have here. But uh, there was this beautiful snowy scene, sunset happening in the background with this beautiful glow and then uh, this big bull elk comes out stands in the middle of the field and just kind of stares at me and i've got this beautiful sunset back behind him and i've got nothing but a a 16 to 35 (laughs) yeah that's not and i missed that shot uh but you know as a landscape photographer as as long as you're paying attention to your surroundings there's going to be lots of opportunities you just have to be prepared to to get them um
4: that was going to be my question is kind of equipment related so Tell us what you use for equipment, but Mm -hmm. also I think Doug and I run into this a lot with video where if, so you're shooting landscape, but then you might have the opportunity to have wildlife, right? So there's two different scenarios. With us, it's like we'll be shooting video, but then we're thinking, oh, this is a great still image, but it's not an easy switch. I mean, we have to make adjustments. We have to totally dial in the camera a little bit differently if we're going to shoot a still as opposed to a video A lot of times it's two different cameras i would assume with well knowing what we know is if you're dialed in for a landscape shot you're gonna have to change some settings and do some different things right so do you do that by carrying an extra camera or do you do that just because or by oh i know i need to go to this this and this or do you use one of those custom functions on your camera to just hit the button and then you're in like wildlife mode what is the just give us your kind of snapshot into those little problems
1: yeah Sure, so uh, Equipment backstory is this year. I switched from Canon to Sony, which is an interesting subject in its own uh, but I to answer that question is uh, all the time. I always shoot in manual and uh, So, you know when I'm shooting a landscape, I'm often, you know, shooting in manual ISO 100 and I'm changing shutter speed But one of I always have one of my custom functions set to my oh crap mode which is you know it's continuous focus. It's auto ISO, and then it's like a fast shutter speed with with a wide open aperture, typically. So, you know, regardless of the lens that I have on, it's automatically going to go to one thousandth of a second, auto ISO, wide open, with continuous focus. That way, if I do see something, I can like quickly throw on. Well, gear wise, what I always have with me is a 16 to 35, 24 to 105, and a 100 to 400. So I've got, you know, 16 to 400 millimeters. It's, you know, it's not the pro wildlife setup for sure. But on the Sony side, there's not really that pro <laughs> wildlife setup anyways, lens wise. But, you know, in daylight situations, you can get some really, really stunning shots with a 100 to 400 as long as you get enough light. Um, so that's that's kind of my setup. A lot of times when I'm in a situation like I'm I'm thinking of this one time, Uh, This summer I was leading a private workshop over on the coast and we were there to shoot, um, you know, shoot seascapes. But there happened to be all these pelicans just fishing like, you know, 50 feet from us just dive bombing the water i don't know if you've ever watched pelicans fish i'm sure you guys probably have but man they just hit the water going 30 miles an hour and i've never really seen it i was like that is cool it's also really hard to photograph because (laughs) because they just fall out of the sky and they're slamming into the water and uh but you know, in a situation like that, it's not that hard. Reach in the bag, throw the 100 to 400 on, switching into that oh crap mode, and uh, and then get some shots of it. And then you can, if it if it's a lasting moment, then you can tweak your settings and dial in what you need. But I've always got that one of those custom functions set up to my oh crap, there's wildlife mode.
4: All right, so since we're talking about this, I don't want to stray too far away from the landscape stuff. I
0: saw all the I, eyes I light good. up just a second ago. <laughs> yep.
4: But um, we did a podcast a couple of weeks ago with John Hafner and and his partner Caleb, and they were talking about, or they had just switched to the Fuji mirrorless system. Mm-hmm. So you've switched from Canon to yep. a mirrorless system. What do? You, why did you do that? And how do you like it so far?
1: Well, first of all, I was coming from a 5D Mark IV, and it's a great all-around camera. But just out of curiosity, I wanted to try the Sony system because, first of all, I knew that the image quality was going to be a bump up. And so now I have an A7R 3 and an A7 III. The A7R three is amazing image quality. Um, just having that much more resolution is beautiful. The Nikon side of things, it's very similar to a D850. Um, but to have an electronic viewfinder where you see exactly what your shot is before you take it, that is amazing in itself. Um, Just little things like uh, being able to see exactly what your depth of field is at all times, like, you know, it's just a live view. Um, I've found the switch to Sony to be a a mostly positive one. I've definitely taken a hit on things like, uh, you know, as far as fast, long telephoto primes there's not many but there there is the one they have the 400 millimeter f2.8 which i just took to an nfl game and it's a absolutely amazing lens but it's twelve thousand (laughs) dollars so there's that so it's not exactly in the reach of most people but i would say also and weather sealing has it's not as good as what my canon was i have to baby it a little bit more but the way i look at it is it's you know it's a 50 cent piece of plastic away from being fine so i can fix that with a cheap rain cover uh, but it's just got so much more image quality it's so much sharper uh autofocus wise is it's interesting it is different but i find it to be just as good as my canon was i noticed that when i shot the nfl game i actually rented an a9 and for sports and wildlife that camera is just crazy good now, one of the things that you gain with with that particular camera and i think the same is true for the fuji xt3 is that you have zero blackout in between frames and so when you're when you're rattling off 20 frames a second of moving action it just looks like a movie you don't there's no no even momentary blackout in between frames and it makes tracking things so much more effortless can't be overstated how useful that is in shooting action whether it's wildlife or sports so that a9 is incredible kind of been it but the biggest thing the biggest benefit for me as a landscape photographer or anything photographer really has just been the bump in resolution the bump in image quality images are way sharper way more dynamic range Um, shooting wildlife with this is really nice because i have so many more megapixels to crop in on because so often especially with only a 400 millimeter lens you end up cropping in and to be able to crop in so much further and still have plenty of pixels to in your image is really, really nice.
2: Well, you've talked about using that Metabones adapter also with some of
1: your Canon glass, right? Yeah, so Are I they... start. I started off adapting everything, thinking I went in very optimistic, thinking I've got all these Canon lenses and I'll just adapt them you lose a lot of image and you lose a lot of autofocus capabilities. Um, over here on the shelf, I have the Sigma 120 to 300 F 2.8 for the Canon. And, you know, I had, I had delusions of, of adapting that and, and it really solving a problem because it's kind of a hole in the lens lineup. But I found the autofocus uh, performance through those adapters. It doesn't matter which one to be just kind of lacking, you know? So I I've, I've since, gotten rid of everything except for that one lens in canon land and i'm all native lenses now native 70 to 200 is an amazing lens all of the other lenses are amazing this 100 to 400 is about the size of a canon 70 to 200 to 8 so it's much smaller than the 100 to 400 and it's sharper and it, it focuses excellent i i love the thing i just wish that there was you know like a two eight or something in that fast telephoto prime area that was a little bit more affordable than the 40028 because twelve thousand dollars is just too much
0: so you said the edge sharpness is uh, a step up right and so obviously with landscape photography that is going to be huge um you know so i mean you you're finding that to be a significant uh, difference in what you're doing
1: yeah, I mean, the combination of having more resolution, just, you know, more pixels, and this doesn't have the anti-aliasing feature, those two things uh, make it f- the, these files far sharper than my Canon was. Mm-hmm. Um, so regardless of the lenses. Also, another thing is, um, I don't know if you guys are tele- uh, teleconverter users. Um, it's kind of like some people just like to crop, some people like to, and, it's kind of, and yeah. that's exactly how I was before, because the teleconverters, especially on the Canon side, were like, I could probably crop and get a little sharper. But yeah. the one-four teleconverter on this is, there's, I can't notice a difference in in sharpness, and I cannot notice a difference in autofocus capabilities. Obviously, you know, I'm losing some stops of light, but if you got that light, it's pretty awesome.
4: How does it compare with the uh, low-light capabilities with the ISO performance?
1: The 5D mark IV was pretty good for ISO performance. I feel like this is about the same maybe a tiny bit better like I expected it to be uh, uh, More of a, a jump up than it was probably but high ISOs, is I like when I'm shooting high school football, I'm often up 20,000 ISO, and I can and I and I don't taste vomit in my mouth. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's saying something, right? But uh, I know my 5D4. I I'd never like to take it much above like 12 12,500. Um, but with this, I take it up to 20,000, and it's usable. You know, you don't you don't want to crop in much on it, but as long as you're using the full frame, it's totally usable.
4: So talk to us a little bit about the landscape stuff as far as, uh, are you out there with a tripod constantly? Is that a, you know, because so much of what we're talking about these days for wildlife guys is we never, well, wildlife still shooters, nobody uses tripods anymore just because the ISO performance is so good and the lenses are pretty good and you really don't need it. But as a landscape guy, you've got to have it, right?
1: Yeah, a lot of times, you know, as a landscape shooter... You're always trying to get absolutely maximize image quality in, in whatever way you need to do that. And a lot of the kind of scenes that I'm shooting, I'm oftentimes shooting water. It's just kind of what I'm drawn to because we're ta- kind of talking about how most landscape images are static. And that's one of actually my pet peeves about landscape images is a static landscape. It just feels boring to me. So a lot of times I'm trying to find some movement. Most times that's through the the movement of water. And so because of that, a lot of times I need that tripod to get that fifth of a second or a half second or whatever it is that I'm shooting for. Also, anytime I'm shooting on a tripod, I'm far more thoughtful about composition because you set up on a tripod and then you sit back and you look at your image and you actually analyze it. If you're looking through a viewfinder you're far less critical about corners and distractions and all the things that are entering your frame if you're on a on a on a tripod and you're looking at the back of the LCD and you actually have a moment to ponder your composition not only does it make you more critical of that composition but then it from a landscape point of view where I'm doing some fairly advanced post-processing, it opens up things like focus stacking and focal length blending. And, and one of the things that I like to do oftentimes is actually shutter speed blending where I might take a waterfall stream shot where uh, dragging the shutter a little bit for the stream because it looks really nice at a fifth of a second, but that waterfall in the background looks better at a hundredth of a second. So I can change my shutter speed, change my settings and capture both with the exact same composition and then blend the faster shutter speed in with the slower shutter speed. Uh, lots of things like that. It's really hard to pull off in a in a high quality way handheld. So I I preach tripods pretty heavily.
0: Amen. I do too. I don't care what anybody else says. Still stills or video. I, I still preach the the uh, the tripod.
1: You know, as as the resolution of our cameras gets higher camera shake it becomes more of a problem anyway so there's been lots of times where even though my shutter speed was nice and fast because i was whipping the camera a little bit when i took that shot like you know moving waves or whatever i'm not getting that critical sharpness that i would have had i been had a nice stable platform and use that same shutter speed you made a switch recently there too didn't you uh my, it's actually not super recently but um i used to use Fizal tripods and well. You know, I bought one and I used it for a while. I had all kinds of issues with it, and then now I'm really right stuff everything. I once you once you go really right stuff, you never go back.
0: That's <laughs> so, right.
1: Um. So I I have two setups. I have my big big setup, which is my three four L with a BH fifty five head thing is just a beast with a panorama head and then i have my small i have to walk somewhere <laughs> further than 30 feet from the car and so i have like a 2-4 uh, a 2-4 verza with a bh40 and that's kind of my hiking setup and man really right stuff it's just how it sounds it's really right stuff i love it even little things like I don't know, and nobody will be able to see this. But on top of my 100 to 400, I have a tripod foot replacement that is just in the shape of an Arca Swiss compatible uh, foot. So you don't there's no plate needed. The foot is the plate, and just little things like that. It's actually a weight saver. Plus, a uh, really nice stuff has a strap system which uses the quick release. Um, it's like actually designed for military rifles where they, their strap is made from Kevlar. And then it's got this really awesome connection system where you just uh, shove it in and it can swivel 380 to de- 380 degrees. That'd be a trick. <laughs> 360 <laughs> degrees. And then uh, you can just quickly release it. And it's way better than anything out there because it can't fail. But everything that Really Right Stuff does is just amazing. I use their L brackets on everything and, and I use their tripods and ball heads. Yeah, we were fortunate enough to have Joe Johnson on the show.
2: Really Right Stuff sponsored uh, Doug's TV series. Oh, nice. So, yeah, Joe came on the show and talked a little bit about the company. And, yeah, it is some fantastic equipment.
1: Yeah, they they do everything the right way rather than the more cost-affordable way. And for that reason, it's also really expensive stuff, but... You know, if, if you can either buy nice or buy twice, as they say. There you go. <laughs> and so if you if you get something really high quality at the very beginning, you're going to actually be saving money because you're not going to have to replace it every two years. So, Nick, w- when we talk about looking at wildlife photography
2: with a landscape photographer's eye, when you're going out and you're trying to decide on a composition, I mean, you, you typically know the area that you want to be in when you're looking at a composition, obviously, I mean, you kind of alluded to it earlier. You can't really choose that moment. Mm-hmm. It's when the moment presents itself. And that's kind of with, with wildlife, there are times where the wildlife appear in areas where it doesn't really lend itself to the opportunity to do an environmental type portrait. It's, you know, it's going to be a tight shot and that's all you're going to have. But when you look at composing an image, what is a Kind of talk us through what a landscape photographer looks at in composing that image what what are the types of dimensional things that you want to see
1: well it's it's tough because like you said you you're not in full control of whether you know where that animal is going to appear but the things that you are in control of is where you're standing and in that way you can change what the background is and what the setup is so um, I'm going to be going up to Lake Coeur d'Alene in that area to photograph bald eagles because right now they're just thick up there. And one of the things that I really want is, is, uh, not only just a, you know, a shot of an Eagle fishing, everybody, everybody with a telephoto lens can get that shot if they know how to autofocus. But what I'm looking for is to get, get a shot that tells more of a story more of a story about the, the surroundings about, you know, the landscape around it. And also, I'm always paying attention regardless of the type of photography to light because good light makes a shot, you know, it it really does. And if, if you can get that, that Eagle shot where it's not only is, do you have a tack sharp shot of an Eagle, but if you get an excellent moment, like maybe it's about, about to fish, but you're shooting it slightly wider, with with uh, more of a thoughtful background so what i'm going to try to do is try to put myself in a position where i can clean up that background and have a light source or a light direction that that actually adds to the feeling adds to the atmosphere of the shot if you're always shooting with the sun a lot of times you're going to get you know a nice uh bright well-lit eagle with like catchlights in the eyes and stuff and that's a lot of what uh, I think wildlife photographers are often looking for is shooting with the light source but as a landscape guy I, I love the mystical stuff and so a lot of times I'm shooting into the sun and I'm trying to get get my subjects back lit so it has that sense of atmosphere and and maybe um, you know the eagle is not well lit but it but when you backlight, you know, a, the spray of the water and stuff, it just has more feeling to it. You know, Bob Ross paint. <laughs> let's go back to Bob Ross. Uh, <laughs> you know, Bob Ross lo- loves to uh, and other painters love to paint things that have that sense of atmosphere, that sense of feeling and mood. And so when I'm taking a photo I, I and when I'm composing a photo, whether it's, you know, cropping in on a shot or whatever, I, I often try to think to myself, If I was painting this scene, would I include everything in it? And when you're, when you have an eagle swooping down, would you include that house in the background or would you try to crop it out? Or would you try to compose it in a way to where you're simplifying the shot? Because the more you simplify a shot most times, the more uh, successful it's going to be because the viewer is not going to be distracted by all those little things in the background. So with that said, I'm going to try to put myself in a position where I can have that nice, clean background, have that mystical backlight and still capture the moment of the eagle, you know, either swooping away with a fish or about to about to pounce on a fish. Um, so that that's the kind of stuff that I'm thinking about is I'm thinking about light direction, cleaning up backgrounds, but not shooting so tight to where it's all about the eagle. I'm also trying to include that landscape back behind it.
0: So let me ask you a question about, um, about aperture. Oh, let's, let's dumb it down to the very basics where, you know, everybody's starting out, they've been told, okay, for landscape shots, you know, you want the maximum amount of depth of field. So therefore you should shoot F 22, right? Well, as you get into it, you, uh, you get more experience. You do start to realize that some lenses start to fail past, mm-hmm. you know, F 11 And um, so I'm curious from a landscape photographer's, you know, specifically a landscape photographer's point of view, how do you deal with that? Do you just know your lenses already or do you kind of say, you know what, screw it, it's not that bad, (laughs) Uh, I want the extra depth of field, or, you know, how do you approach that?
1: So you kind of hit on it, like knowing your lenses is really important. I think most like pro grade professional lenses right now, they perform better than pro grade professional lenses of 10 years ago used to. Diffraction still is a problem. And for that reason, I never stop down beyond F16. I kind of treat F16, maybe F18 as like my upper limit as far as how far I'm willing to stop down. Because anything beyond that, you start noticing pretty obvious diffraction. But, you know, if you're using a more entry level, kit lens or something like that, or, you know, a, a more affordable lens that might not be the case for your particular lens. And you're going to want to stick with a more like F11 the, every, every shot kind of has its own demands as far as depth of field and and what you can get away with. There's a lot of times where uh depth of field is a non-issue so i'll shoot f8 just for the maximum maximum amount of sharpness because that's where my lens performs the best Uh, there are other times where i have a very static scene i have rock dirt mountain like nothing's moving so i will actually shoot f8 and then i'll focus stack it where i can still achieve that depth of field but using focus stacking where in post i can combine all those shots And then I can get an even sharper shot than if I was to use, um, some kind of hyper, uh, hyper focal length calculator and stuff, which it provides acceptably sharp, which I I hate that term because, because acceptably (laughs) sharp is not sharp. So, um, so a lot of times I'll, if I have a very static scene, I like a, a focus stack if I'm pretty close to my foreground, but in wildlife stuff, it feels like you're always fighting the amount of light. You, it always feels like you never have quite enough light to get the settings you'd love to have. So and then you, then you start thinking about, well, how much depth of field do I actually need? Like, how close am I to that animal and how much do I want sharp? Most times I find myself just like shooting wide open because I need all the light I can get because I'm not shooting a 500 uh, F4 and I'm not shooting, you know, a 400 2.8. eight. I don't have all the light I need. So therefore I'm just going to get all the light I can get, which is often, you know, F five, six or F F five, whatever.
4: So I, I had a question a lot of times when I'm out shooting. So being a wildlife guy, we're running around with a two to four or a 500 mil or whatever it is. Right. But I always want that environmental portrait. So I just want to know if you've tried this and with the amount of post processing you do, you may have, I just had never, it's really hard to find the right situation. So a lot of times my thought is, is, okay, I've got, let's say we're shooting doll sheep, and I've got a doll sheep sitting on this ridge, and I've got a, a big telephoto, right? So I'm very limited as to what I can shoot around it. So what I've tried in the past is I'll shoot that shot, then I'll quickly bang off several shots to create this panorama shot and stitch them all together in post-processing, and now I've got my environmental portrait. The issue I run into is it's really hard to get that perfect situation to pull that off mm-hmm. just right. Have you tried that before, and and have you had any success at it?
1: I actually never have because I'm I'm very seldom shooting a long prime. I'm always got a zoom, so uh, then I just go oh, 100 millimeters. Look <laughs> at that, I fixed the problem. But uh, yeah, what you're talking about is something that you know actually a lot of portrait photographers are doing it's kind of a technique where you especially if you're a back button focus user like i bet all three of you guys are huh?
0: right yep, all three uh, yep
1: no manual oh uh, <laughs> man. oh because so video video okay okay i was gonna say if it you're shooting stills too stills too yeah. and shooting moving yeah. birds Man,
4: yeah, but he's a he's a, a getting, Are you shooting
0: film or what's uh, going on? Did you see this, though? <laughs> you see these? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not as good as I once was. <laughs> <laughs> wow,
1: that so you just you just leveled up, sir. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's what was I even saying? Well, that and I have to throw in reality. there too.
4: Uh, Mark is a he isn't the back, he's wildlife guy, but he doesn't use the back button, he likes to have it on the trigger because then he can move his focus point around uh, cuz his thumb is free point. right so he can True. he can compose while he's using his trigger finger. To, yeah, and that's the thing.
1: Like, That's something that people don't really talk about is people love being able to move their focus point with, like, the touchscreen on some of the new mirrorless. But that only works if you're not a back-button focus user. As soon as you're a back-button focus user, which I am as well, um, that is just a really slow way of doing it. But, right. Uh, but anyways, what I was going to say, which is way less cool now, is, <laughs> is that something that people will do is they'll – They'll, take that for, they'll focus on their subject and they'll take that first shot. And then they will shoot a panorama while not refocusing. And then you end up with this really cool shallow depth of field wide shot, which is actually beyond the capabilities of of most lenses, because they're you're getting a relatively wide point of view but with a much shallower depth of field than most lenses are capable of so the problem with um, what you're talking about is that you would end up with a fairly shallow depth of field in that environmental portrait which could be cool but at the same time if you're going to include a lot of that environment it's going to be a little bit weird if it's all soft and you know boke it out which it would be
4: but. right yeah you really have to play with it and that's what that's why i say it really requires the I've tried it a lot and I think about it all the time, but it's never in the perfect situation or, or that panorama is better off to the right and the animals looking to the left or whatever the situation is. It's, it's difficult. It's always on my mind, but I'd never really quite get the perfect situation.
1: One situation that that would be really cool is if you had a situation where it was kind of a depth shot where you're shooting through um, a lot of vegetation or something, and you have a lot of out of focus, uh, f- you know, foliage and stuff around your sharp subject, that'd be really cool to really emphasize some of that um, shallow depth of field that you get with that long telephoto. Yeah, yeah. it's
4: something to play with. I think, um, you know, when I started doing it, I thought oh, this would be a really cool, you know, 20 foot long print, but then who is going to buy that? right <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> or who has the room to put that up on their in their house so or on the side of a building or whatever so limited use but it's a fun thing to play with it's, yeah. it's fun to think about and if you do get it it can be quite striking and yeah, you could absolutely. sell it for a hundred thousand dollars and retire
1: <laughs> and that, that'd that be a great uh like photo competition like see who can get the best one of those because it's such a special use thing they'd have to earn it
0: yep exactly i got a question for you um so i noticed on your website and by the way um i didn't get a chance to tell you earlier your work is phenomenal i mean some of the some of the best uh landscape stuff i've seen really really good stuff so props to you you. on that um but i was looking at some of your your night sky stuff uh, especially with the aurora and things like that so i'm just kind of curious to hear your point of view on the night photography side of this so are you one of these people that opts for um shooting wide open for your night landscapes and you know save the the noise problem with your iso or or you you're trying to to utilize the high isos and and actually get a little more depth of field by maybe shooting five, six or something like that, you know, at nighttime,
1: I'm always shooting wide open. So, uh, a lot of times, you know, and there's, and nowadays with post-processing, like, you know, there's a lot of people that'll actually shoot the foreground of a scene during blue hour and then they'll stick around and wait for it to get dark. And then they'll take their night shot. I don't do that because it feels too much like compositing two totally different days and time of days. Uh, but I typically shoot everything wide open. But if I have a depth of field problem, like I'm my main subject or my foreground is not sharp enough to make the photo look decent, I will focus stack it. So I'll still mm. I'll shoot that same shot. Maybe I will change my settings to where I'm doing like a two-minute or three-minute long exposure to get some more show, shadow information. But then I'll just focus stack, and I'll do a series of those. And then I can get that depth of field. While shooting at f two point eight, while keeping my ISO relatively low, I mean, even then, I'm still shooting iso five thousand or eight thousand, but it at least it helps. Like some of the Aurora shots that we just did in Iceland. Uh, We were lucky enough to not be super close to our foreground, so that wasn't an issue. But what was an issue is that you actually have a really high dynamic range scene. The difference between that Aurora, which you're photographing at ISO 3200 for like three seconds, and that foreground with no moonlight, it was massive. Like you have zero shadow information. So to overcome that, what we were doing, or what I was encouraging everybody to do, is to take one long exposure. So we were talking like F2.8, at ISO 800 for like four minutes and you're gonna get some hot pixels but you're also gonna get a whole lot of shadow information uh, You take that shot and then you change your settings take a shot ISO 3200 for three seconds so you can freeze the Aurora get nice pinpoint sharp stars and then blend the two together kind of like an exposure blend just like you have bright sky um, dark foregrounds it's, it's another exposure blending situation kind of like a sunset shot
0: Now these eight thousand, you know, eight and ten thousand ISOs, that's with the Sony. That's not you weren't shooting that with the uh, with the Canon.
1: I was like I I started not feeling so great about the images about ISO yeah. 8000 ISO 8000 is about as high as I ever shoot a night shot because I, I kind of feel like you don't need much. Uh, even at that, the sky is overexposed and then you have to bring it back down. Uh, but the benefit to that is that you're probably using a shorter shutter speed with finer points for your stars, but you can always darken stuff down uh in post i prefer to kind of expose it somewhere in that iso 5000 maybe 6400 area because it seems to be an a nice luminance value that to start with and then you can darken it down and add some contrast to it excellent yeah
2: mike you're looking either puzzled or you've got a question no, no, He's, no, he's no, no.
1: reading a blog. No. <laughs>
4: yeah. Actually, I got your pictures up on the side over here. No, I was just, uh, I don't want to get too much away from the wildlife stuff, but I just got tons of questions, right? Because I just picked up that Sony camera as well. I still have mm-hmm. all the Canon. I didn't get rid of the Canon. I just had a situation where the Sony worked. And long story. But how does that thing perform when you're out in the cold? Like, if you're in ice, I mean, obviously, you had to deal with some pretty cold temperatures, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, so the thing about it in Iceland is it's not so much the temperature that gets you, it's the wind. So we we were shooting about 28 degrees Fahrenheit with like 60 to 70 mile an hour winds. <laughs> and it was the winds that gets you because you're, you're dealing with really high humidity, wet, cold wind. And there was one day that we had gusts, uh, gusts up to 111 miles an hour and we weren't shooting in that, but we were shooting in stuff that was pretty close. Uh, but the batteries on the Sony are actually better than on my Canon. The the batteries that they switched to for the A9, A7R 3 and the A7 III, uh, they're much improved from the previous generation. And I get, you know, I'm I'm shooting a combination of video and photos. And I'm still getting a battery to last me almost all day, shooting all day. It's in. It's really impressive how well the batteries last. It's better than my Canon was.
4: So you started out as a as a still shooter, correct?
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. So most of the video that I do, it's not so much uh, that I'm doing, you know, amazing cinematography. It's that I'm recording my experience in the location. So. Um, I'm doing this weird combination of like, I'm taking photos, but then I'm filming myself taking photos. And so my typical setup is I'll have my still setup, which is my a7R three, And then I have my a7 III is kind of my video camera, which I'll throw on a gimbal and then like try to film my whole experience doing that. And so I end up, with a larger kit because i'm packing around a couple bodies and then that means i need two wide angle lenses and then i've got this gimbal and then i've got a couple tripods it, it come you know makes everything more complex but that's kind of how the youtube channel has to has to work
4: yeah it all you know it seems like all this equipment makes for a lighter easier more agile kit but i know it, it for doug and i it does not work at all we're yeah. packing around tons of gear all the time and bigger tripods and yeah but that's how you get the good stuff right and that's how you you make it all work but that a gimbal setup with that Sony system is pretty sweet little setup
1: yeah cuz yeah. you combine the gimbal with the, the in-body stabilization and it makes stuff really nice and smooth it's got really decent for what i'm using it for it's got really decent audio preamps on it better than my canon was for sure plus i've got full full frame 4k which is not something that canon does yet so you know because i was shooting so much more video sony made a lot more sense just you know the video capabilities and stuff um really blew the canon out of the water
4: yeah, I mean, I we I could sit and talk about this all day, Ron. So we better we'll <laughs> yeah. move on. Better got, intervene. I've got tons and tons and tons of questions, but we'll do that later.
2: So, Nick, w- what advice would you give wildlife ph- photographers when they're looking for the environmental portrait? I mean, you've you've touched on a lot of things, but what's the one thing that we can do as wildlife photographers to train our eye?
1: To yeah, the man. Photography? Let's see. I would say the biggest thing is just to try to think like a painter. You know, if a painter would not take the time to paint what is what is in the image, then you need to get rid of it. You know, whether that's moving a few feet or 30 seconds in Photoshop, you know, uh, I know that the landscape photographers, especially these days, are much quicker to post-process problems away. And as wildlife photographers, like, you know, you you kind of almost have a different set of Of guidelines that you have to live by just so people you know believe the images that they're seeing Um, but thinking like a painter and removing distractions and trying to create uh, not only scale but separation you know a lot in wildlife photography so much of Of What makes a a great wildlife shot happen is that separation from your subject in the background a lot of times that's used with Aperture and depth of field, but it can also be used with framing, you know, if you have a dark subject Putting them against a slightly brighter background or if you have a really bright subject putting them against a dark background stuff like that is going to make that that subject really stand out and separate from the background and if you do that in conjunction with a well-framed, very minimal distraction shot, uh, it's it's going always going to be a success. Also, light matters. We're we are all photonographers. You know, photons and light direction and stuff like that really really matters. So, paying close attention to light direction and changing your your um, angle of attack based on light is really the difference between. Being having a successful shoot and having like a okay photograph because if your if your light direction is okay, then your photo is only ever going to be okay. But if you get really great light and get that nice background, that's when it all comes together and you can totally do that just by changing where you are because um, you obviously can't change where your subject is.
0: I got one more thing before we go, Ron. Um, so... Talk a little bit about the importance of planning a shot or planning a location. And, and I'm just curious, like how often do you, do you you plan the shot or a trip and, and locations and, and, you know, you've looked at Google Maps and where the sun rises and mm-hmm. sets and all that kind of stuff. Um, and you get there and you're like, nope, it's a morning shot. I'm here in the afternoon or it's a, you know, bright overcast shot or whatever and have to walk away, you know.
1: Yeah, that happens all the time in landscape photography. in landscape photography as a landscape photographer. We're used to being in control of the elements and in, in some way, like, you know, we can always change where we stand and the time of day and stuff. But with wildlife photography, you can't change where the animals are going to be. The best you can do is try to set yourself up for success, and the, the you know the more you know about the location, and the more more you've scouted all the different possibilities of where they might be or where you can be, uh, that stuff is going to be what really makes a difference in in the success of a shoot shoot. So using things like the photographer's ephemeris, where you see exactly the light directions, you can see like where the little clearings are going to be, stuff like that. That, that stuff can be really valuable for just planning planning not only where you're going to be but where the animals are likely to be just because you can see exactly where the water source is or where the clearing is or whatever. But just being able to scout stuff ahead of time either digitally through Google Maps and the photographer's ephemeris or, um, or photo pills is another really useful one. Uh, one of the things I, uh, tools I really love is using photo pills uh, we do it all the time as landscape photographers where you can actually have um, augmented reality, be at the location, and then scroll through and see exactly where the sun's going to be uh, on your phone at any given time during any given day. It really makes planning stuff a lot better. And the more the more of that kind of knowledge you have, the more likely you are to be successful because you can get there and you can call audibles that are that are educated rather than just guessing.
4: Cool. Thank okay. you. You're like an encyclopedia.
1: <laughs> well, that's a, that's why they pay me the big bucks.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just call him Wiki Nick.
1: Yep, Wiki Nick.
4: <laughs> so yeah. put out your Instagram handle.
1: Yeah, so people can find me. Um, just do a search for Nick Page Photography, and you're going to find me uh, on Instagram, which is where I share the most images these days because Facebook is kind of dead at least to the landscape photographer Uh, and on youtube if you're interested in following my videos and following like my different adventures and stuff you can follow me on youtube just do a search for nick page and my website is nick page photography my podcast is the landscape photography podcast no idea where i came up with the name it's just a blazing moment of inspiration there (laughs) but yeah that's that's where you guys can find me i have tutorials on post-processing and workshops and all that fun stuff so where's so where your next in? workshop? Uh, I head to Kauai, which is really rough this time of year. I know yeah, Kauai, Hawaii. Um, so I leave, uh, I guess it's three weeks. So I'll be sipping Mai Tais and wearing flip-flops and enjoying 80-degree days here in a couple weeks. Nice. Yeah. And it's is a that a gig full gig, workshop, somebody or can
4: somebody, can somebody join in?
1: It's a full workshop. Um, actually, I think – Every workshop during 2019 is already full, which uh, makes it very difficult to (laughs) market anything. But um, I know I'm going to one thing that is open is right now there is uh, registrations being uh, available for the out of Oregon um, conference. It's a landscape photography conference where there's people like Sean Bagshaw and Blake Rudis and Aaron Bobnick and Gavin Hardcastle, a whole bunch of really great instructors. And we go out and we shoot in the morning, we go out and shoot in the evening, kinda like a workshop in the Newport, Oregon area. But then all day long there's presentations and and portfolio reviews and and post production stuff. So um lots of really cool stuff. And I think there's like, I don't know, like eight spots left, and there's a hundred spots. So better be quick. And <laughs> what, what's that. the timing on that? Uh, that's gonna be next October. So October of twenty what year is it? Nineteen? 2019 and that'll be it's called out of Oregon so if you do a Google search for out of Oregon you'll find that stuff and i think um you can give 300 bucks off if you use the name, the code page which is my last name so there's that
4: cool. Merry
1: Christmas. Yeah, merry christmas to you guys. Thanks for having <laughs> yeah. me on. This has been fun. Yeah. Thank
4: yeah. You. thanks
0: for agreeing for
4: to be on. We'll make something happen and thanks for your time
3: today. It was really good. Awesome. Yeah, but I
0: appreciate it. Enjoyed it.
3: Thanks to Nick Page for taking the time to be this week's guest. You can see more of his work in this episode's show notes at wildandexposed.com. Also, no matter what podcast platform you're listening to us on, please take the time to follow along and subscribe and to give us a positive review, that five-star rating or the thumbs up as those allow us to do what we love to do and bring you these podcasts on a weekly basis. Until next time... You've been listening to Wild and Exposed Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.